And I'm glad that we could stop and have prayer for America. We've taken time to pray for America. And we've been intentional today to remember the tragic events of that Tuesday 15 years ago. You know, today is the birthday of a lot of people. And I wonder how they feel about September the 11th with this shadow that's on that day. Last year, and, and um, you know, whatever, it's not that I like to get emotional, but uh, I've seen a couple of things. I watched something about the uh, Shankville uh, Memorial there to United 93, and uh, what a moving experience that was to watch that. And some other things, uh, there was things that happened at the Pentagon that I didn't realize. PBS had a, uh, a special on that that was profound and some of the inner workings that went on there. But uh, last year, one of the uh, networks had maybe 30 14-year-olds in studio that was turning 14 on 9-11. And they were asking them, how do you feel about your birthday your moms went into labor and gave birth to you on the very day that all of these things happened. And it was interesting to hear these 14 years talk about that they share their birthday with this, with this remembrance. Um, in homiletics, well, December the 7th is kind of like that too for older people. Uh, when, when you think of December the 7th, I, always, I wasn't born until 1951, but... That was, that was so instrumental in my parents' life as newlyweds and how they, the first several years of their marriage was um, in World War II. But uh, in homiletics, sermons are classified by maybe structure and purpose. And I don't really know if today's message has a category. How's that? So it's going to be other. You know, that's what you check when you... <laughs> other. Uh, maybe it's a 9-11 message, but I titled this message this morning, It's Not Enough, and we're going to read from Philippians chapter 3, so if you want to turn there. And if you have the option with um, uh, your iPhone or something to pull up the King James Version, you probably don't read it that often, but I'm going to read it out of the King James Version this morning. Uh, While you're turning there, let me just express my appreciation to Shane Doral for everything he does. And um, all of these announcements that he, he uh, designs and produces, all of that. Um, he updates our website. And um, the, the small groups on our website is great. Um, he gave me a heads up when it came up that, that it could be uh, access. And he said, in case you want to be the first one. So I hurried over there and I was the first one to sign up uh, for a small group. Take the lead. But I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 3. And really and truly, when you read the section I'm going to read, it's it's one of my favorite places in this wonderful book. Um, This title, this chapter could be, It's Not Enough. So track this with me in verse 10. Again, I'm reading out of King James that I may know him, referring to Jesus, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means 
I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. <clears throat> but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. You can put in, it's not enough. <laughs> I count not myself as apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I love this passage. There's a lot of neat passages in Philippians. This is probably his favorite church. A twist of irony here is interesting. The church was birthed out of a jailbreak, but not the typical jailbreak that you think of. Paul and Silas were in a Philippian jail because they had ran crosswaves of some of the people in the city, and they had not only been arrested, they had been roughed up pretty good. And in the middle of the night, the book of Acts records that they were worshiping the Lord and singing, and God shook the ground that this jail was built on so violently that the doors flew open, and the jailer on duty that night almost took his own life until somebody called out from the dark, and it was Paul, said, don't, don't do that. We're all here. Nobody's left. Now, that's kind of a miracle, isn't it? The jail... The jail just kind of opens up and nobody leaves. And that jailer and his family became the first converts in Philippi. And that church was started out of that miracle. Now here, Paul is again a prisoner in Rome. And he's writing to a church that was started by a jailer and his family. What an irony that is, right? But he's talking about this is not enough. This, I'm, I'm in a place where I haven't gotten to where I want to be. Isn't it interesting as Paul who had such revelation of Jesus says that I want to know him. I want to know him. I want to know the fellowship, the sharing of his suffering. I want to step into the conformity of his death. I want to share with everything about Christ so that I can touch the resurrected life that's in him. Think about that. And he uses the word press twice. I press toward the mark of the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The word press actually comes from a word meaning to run, specifically to flee like you're running from something to someone else. And it's kind of like Paul is saying, I'm running from what I, I'm not to who, the one who I can become more than what I can be. He said, I'm not, I'm not there yet. I haven't gotten to where I want to be. I want to read this passage from the message. If you have that, you can uh, pull that up. A different rending. Keep in mind, this is why I read out of King James, because, uh, you know, that I may apprehend that for which I've also been apprehended of by Christ Jesus. I love the word apprehend, right? That means somebody got you. <laughs> somebody sees you. 
And I know the NIV says to, to lay hold and all of this, but the word is even more than just, it means to grab. And he says, the Lord has grabbed me, but the way he's grabbed me, I want to lay hold of that more. Listen to the message. Now, I'm going to add verse 15 out of the message because it has a lot to say as to what should this say to us today. Verse 10 in the message. I gave up all that inferior stuff so that I could know Christ personally, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in his suffering, and go all the way with him to death itself. If there was any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, I want to do it. I'm not saying that I have this all together, that I have made it, but I am well on my way, reaching out for Christ who has so wondrously reached out for me. Friends, don't get me wrong. By no means do I count myself an expert in all of this, but I got my eye on the gold where God is beckoning us onward to Jesus. I'm often running, and I'm not running back. So let's keep focus on that goal. Those of us who want everything God has for us. Anybody like that here? Those of us who want everything God has for us. If any of you have something else in mind, something less than total commitment, God will clear your blurred vision. You'll see it yet. And all of this is about the resurrection from the dead. Eternity. I posed a question recently where I asked people, what is the most important question that you could ask someone? And I think I got some of the typical responses. Uh, Do you know Jesus? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Do you know where you will spend eternity? And in a a lunch meeting this week, we... I was discussing this with someone about what are the great questions of life? What what should we be asking people? What should we be asking ourselves as far as the great question? And those responses were good responses, but I had a different little angle that I wanted people to see is what is the purpose of life? Some questions that people ask is what is God to you? C.S. Lewis said, if there was no purpose to life, if we were just came about as an evolutionary process, why would we even be asking that if there's a purpose in life? When you come to think of it, the reason we ask is because there is a purpose to life. And And Paul expressed that purpose. It is to know the living God. And you and I can only know the living God through his son. Paul is answering these questions. The questions about what is the purpose of life? And what is the great question? He is answering those questions. And he's answering answering it through his own journey. Look at verse 11 again. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Eternity is The issue. Eternity is the issue. Think about this statement. I'm going to say it more than once. Eternity intersects the now all the time. Eternity is not just out there. It is here. 
It intersects our lives all the time where you will spend eternity because all of us have a terminal point. All of us have a place at some point in time we're going to face the intersection of eternity and now and we're going to step across. And that's what brings me to this matter today on the 15th anniversary of, of 9-11 in 2001, I was telling someone the other day about my mom, and my mother was a unique person, and, and I would say that, but even people who were outside our family would say that. But she was so, she was so toward people. We lived on two, Highway 280 when it was a two-lane. But way before Interstate 65 connected, you know, the north part of Alabama all the way down. And so 280 was the highway that people traveled from Birmingham to Sylacaugan on to Auburn. We, get, we got to watch all the people heading to Auburn for football games. And we was just feeling sorry for them as they were heading down there. <laughs> but I'm just saying 280 was a main, it's like Highway 31 was from Birmingham to Montgomery. 280 was traveled, so it was not uncommon you know, the, the old ambulances that would, you know, go to Rex looked like a hearse, which, if you remember, that had like bubblegum machine lights on top of them. They, they come, the siren come flying down 280. And when my mom would hear that siren, she would go into intercessory prayer. Never an exception I ever remember. She would start praying, and she was praying for the people who that ambulance was traveling toward. And in that prayer, she was saying to God, Lord, may they not die until they have a chance to meet you. Don't let them die until someone is there to help them find you. And that impacted us. It reminded us that at death, Eternity just intersected someone's life. And Jesus said there's only two ways. There's only two roads. One leads to life everlasting. One leads to eternal destruction. And my mom felt the weight of that when she knew someone's life was in the balance. Her prayers, she, I think she saw herself as stepping into the intersection between eternity and the now and trying to be the rescuer of someone's soul just by praying for her. When 9-11 took place in 2001, she was already advanced very much in Alzheimer's. And I don't know how much of that dreadful day she understood. But here's the reality. On that day, eternity intersected the now for a lot of people. It did. The death toll was staggering. You know, we fail to appreciate, and I want to say this, not dishonoring those who that we just recognize and we're going to recognize some more in just a moment. But do you realize 50,000 people worked in the Twin Towers? 50,000 people, that was their job. That was where they worked. And the daily average of visitors to the World Trade Center Towers was 200,000 people. So at some point in the day, there could have been 250,000 people. Maybe not all 200,000 are there at the same time. But that was how mammoth these buildings were. 
that they could accommodate that much tourism. And the death toll of the Twin Towers was 2,600 people. Over 300 of them firemen. And we don't realize what an incredible effort it was to evacuate the people below where those airliners hit the World Trade Center. But I want, to, I want us to focus on some individuals this morning. You may have read their stories. You may not have. I don't know of many entire families that were killed, that were victimized by 9-11. But I do know that there was at least one family, the entire family. And I want to introduce to you Charles and Leslie Falkenberg and their daughters, Zoe, age 8, And Dana, age three. Leslie in this picture, an economist, associate professor at Georgetown University, was awarded a short-term appointment as a visiting fellow at the Australian National University at Canberra in Australia. So the whole family got to thinking that in two months we could all go. So they boarded American Airlines Flight 77 at Dulles International Airport that was destined for Los Angeles and then on to Australia. They were among the 58 passengers, four flight attendants and two pilots who died that day when that plane crashed into the Pentagon. There were no discernible remains for the three-year-old Dana. Her name is inscribed on a grave marker in Arlington National Cemetery where the cremated ashes of all remains not linked to a particular victim were buried. Other remains which were identified were included in that grave according to some of the families that, that requested that. Zoe and Dana were not the only children on that flight. In fact, there were eight children, 11 and under, that died, and all of them were on the airliners. Three of them was on the airliner that struck the South Tower. But let me introduce to you the other three children that were on Flight 77. And here they are. All three of them, were 11 years of age. Why were they on that flight? Well, I'm going to share with you a little bit about each of them. Bernard Curtis Brown II. Bernard was considered clever, quick-witted, the kind of boy who kept his teachers on their toes. Estella Cleveland, who taught his fifth-grade class the year before he was in the sixth grade. Estella Cleveland was his teacher in the fifth grade at Leckley Elementary School in southeast Washington. She said he used to give the fourth grade teachers a fit, but he turned it around during his fifth grade, became an excellent student, and that's why Miss Cleveland gave Bernard's name to his sixth grade teacher, Hilda Taylor. When Taylor asked her, What student should I take on a four-day National Geographic trip to California? That's right. 
Bernard's sixth grade teacher was on that flight with him as well. Miss Taylor drove from her home to uh, pick up at Bolin Air Force Base where Bernard lived with his parents who lived in naval housing. And she left her car there at the base and the boy's mother drove the two travelers to Dulles International Airport. An official at the Browns house said that they did not want to speak about their son's death. They only said he was fun-loving and was a joy of his class. Asia Cottom, 11, just started the sixth grade at Bacchus Middle School in northeast Washington. It was a new school, but it was a school where her dad was a custodian, so she was pretty excited about going to the school where her dad taught. She was to take a trip to California on this same National Geographic. It was a special trip that only three students out of the Washington middle schools were invited. Her and her teacher, Sarah Clark, were on that flight, number 77. On Wednesday, the day after the hijacking, one of her teachers, Lizzie Jones, addressed a sixth-grade language arts class. We are missing someone today. Do you know who that is? She asked the class. Yes, some of them said, it's Asia. And the students talked about how much they would miss her. Lizzie Jones said that Asia's mother, on the night of the tragedy when she went to be with her, said, Mrs. Jones, my baby got her wings today. And Miss Jones says, I told her we have to live right so that we can get our wings when it is our time. Eternity intersected the now, didn't it? And here's Rodney Dickens. Now, he looks like he would be a neat kid, doesn't he? He has that expression like, better keep your eye on me. He grew up in a tough area of Washington, D.C., where dangers lurked on every corner. But he, he, he you know, pretty much avoided those kind of tragedies in his family life. He went with Dulles International Airport with his teacher from Ketchum Elementary School, boarded American Flight 77, and was part of that horrific tragedy at the Pentagon. He was an 11-year-old sixth grader who had always made the honor row, as had his two sisters, one year older and one year younger. He had little brothers ages six and four who were hoping to follow their older brother's footsteps. He was very close to his mother, LaShawn, who was raising all of her children as a single parent with the help of a large extended family. Now, all three of these kids were students that were high academic students. This was, this was probably the trip of a lifetime, especially for some kid like Rodney, who probably never would have thought he could ever cross the country. But their dreams and their futures were hijacked along with that plane. I've often wondered what those people on those flights experienced before that crash point took place. We probably are glad we don't know the horrific way those planes were hijacked. All three of the teachers that were accompanying these students all had master's degrees, some of them close to retirement. 
And yet their lives and their futures were hijacked as well. You know, we can romanticize the events of 9-11 to the point that we look at 2,600 people who died in the World Trade Center, the two towers, and we can almost feel like because of this is a national tragedy that all 2,600 of them stepped immediately into the presence of Jesus. Well, that didn't happen. I remember watching the first tower crash. We were at our district headquarters in Montgomery. We were in devotion for our Tuesday prisoners meeting. When Sister Glover stepped in and said, uh, please pray, a plane has struck one of the World Trade Center towers. And so we stopped and prayed for a while. Then we got back into our devotional time. And then she stepped in, she says, with an excitable voice because her niece's husband worked in one of the trade center towers and said, oh my, another plane. It looks like it's been that, that people are attacking us. And some left the room to the television in the room where she was at to see it. A few of us stayed in the room, got on our faces before the Lord and started crying out to God. And then we heard a plane had struck the Pentagon. Then the rest of the room emptied. And I remember standing next to Brother Glover and watching this, these horrific fires in these massive buildings. All of a sudden, the South Tower collapses. And we gasp. And I remember saying out loud, all those people in that building just died right in front of us. I looked at Brother Glover and I said, I'm going home. And I went and got my car and left. I think others decided to do the same thing. Eternity intersected that day for all those people. I wonder how many of them, while that inferno was beneath the floors where their offices were, and some of them so desperate to get out of the condition that the horrible sight of some leaping from those floors to their death. But I wonder how many of them cried out to God, asked Him for their forgiveness, asked Him for His forgiveness and His mercy. I wonder how many friends who knew them, and by the way, Sister Glover's niece's husband was among the casualties. He worked for one of the investment firms in the upper floors of one of the towers. 1,100 of those people who died in those towers, they could not find any remains whatsoever for them to inter somewhere for family closures. But I wonder how many friends of them, of the victims, especially those friends who were people of faith, who wondered at that moment, did I use every opportunity I had to speak to them about the love of God. Do I wish I had any of those days back? You see, it's not enough to know the way of salvation for yourself. It's not enough. It's not enough to have a desire to share your faith. It's not enough to intend to be light and salt 
and influence people for the kingdom of God. It's not enough to have those intentions. Paul was at a place where he never had enough. He always wanted more. Maybe some of the things that we should run from is our own self-sufficiency and our own complacency, our own being okay. How are you doing? I'm okay. Right? I'm okay. And maybe we don't know how we're not okay. How we are lacking. How we need to be pressed. As Paul said, I am pressed. I want to apprehend what has grabbed me. I want to know him. I want to be more in who he is. All the way to death. All the way to the intersection of eternity and now. Are we okay knowing the way of salvation? Are we okay if we leave it to other people to figure it out for themselves? Are we okay with that? Are we okay with that? See, in reality, listen, in reality, eternity is intersecting us today. Because God is, do you believe God is speaking to us? Do you believe God is pressing us at all? I believe we're more pressed than what we realize. That he is pressing the matter upon us because he knows when everything is going to be final. He knew when all of these were going to live their final day, draw their final breath. Look at how we've adjusted to 9-11. I said something to Larry earlier. How we just got, got used to it, right? We have this anniversary and we'll go on and we'll have, if Jesus tears, we'll have another one next year, the 16th. But should it be that way? Should it be that way? Should the most horrific thing that's ever happened in the U.S., the greatest casualty of any aggression toward this country happened 15 years ago today. Should we be okay with that? I don't think so. You've heard the adage, and Brandon, if you can come back to the platform and the musicians and all. You've heard the adage, too earthly minded for any... And it's usually we're too heavenly minded... For any earthly good, right? We don't hear the other, do we? <laughs> but we hear that a lot. We're too heavily minded. Anybody here too heavily minded? <laughs> I, think, I think more descriptive of us is that we're too earthly minded to be any heavenly good. We're too used to life, used to our, you know, Having enough money in the bank to pay the bills this week. You know, you can get used to that. That every week is a survival week. And we don't think that this is all intersecting eternity. Every single day of our lives. 
Every day could be the last day for all of us. I remember leaving Mary Eaton's room when she was deteriorating very much. And I knelt and prayed with her. I said, Mary, you, you're close. And at that point, she, she said, I know. I said, but I could get in my car and I could beat you to heaven. I could get there before you. Are we too earthly minded to miss heaven's purpose in our life? What do you, what do you want God to do in your life? Please don't say you're okay. Please, please don't say that. If Paul wasn't okay at the point he was at, I don't think we should be okay until God has everything about us, everything that we are. And I look around and there's so much in this room. There's so much on this platform. There's so much in every person. You say, well, you know, I'm in my 80s. There's so much for you. Because you're here. You're here. You're active. God still has his hand on your life. And there's people here. You've got stuff this week that's on on your to-do list. You've, You've got things this week that is pressing you. But keep all of that in perspective. Listen to, let me, let me finish. Would you stand with me? I'm going to finish. Yeah, I'm going to finish. Let me, read, let me read the message out of verse 15. So let's keep focus on the goal. Those of us who want everything God has for us, if any of you has something else in mind, something less than total commitment, God will clear your blurred vision. Are you ready to get your blurred vision out of the way and say, Lord, I want to see. You know, I'm careful how I pray because I'm afraid he might dump something on me too much for me to handle at one time. Lord, just show me in increments. (laughs) Don't scare me what you want to do in my life. Anybody else like that says, you know, I'm going to ask him, but don't show me too much. You're going to freak me out. I want him to show you something today. I want him to show you. In the story, when I was thinking about God can move my mountain, I was thinking about the mountain that he's moving in Tom Whitehead, that he's moving that mountain. That mountain is budging. It's moving. What mountain do you want God to budge in your life? Come and join me this morning. Let's, this is a good day for us to just come and stand here at this altar, 9 11 15th anniversary, but let's do more than just remember it. Let's ask God to move something in us, to awaken something in us. Don't stay where you're at. I'm not talking about where you're standing, but I'm, I'm talking about where you are, where you're living, what, what's going on in your family. Say, God, move me. Move me further than where I've been. I don't think I've come even close to what God wants me to be. I think there's so much more for me, so much more for Brenda. So, I, believe, I just know for certain there's so much for us that are here. Just, just surrender yourself. Just lift your hands some way, some fashion. Lord, all of me, all of me, all of my own thoughts, may I let go of my ideas and let you give me your ideas, Lord.